Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, Today I have Jay Evans. He's at USDA Bee Research Lab, and they conduct research to improve the health of honeybee colonies and help the beekeeping industry maintain adequate, healthy supply of bees for pollination of crops. So, Jay, thanks for coming. Thanks so much, Richard. I'm really happy to speak with you. Yeah. Well, tell me about your work specifically in the uh, in the lab. What do you do? Sure. So we're in a we are an applied laboratory. So we're looking at honeybee health in the context of keeping them that way or keeping them healthy. And as a group, we do everything from uh, mitigating the effects of pesticides on bees uh, to helping with nutrition. And then a couple of us are focused on the bad uh, actors that affect bees, from viruses to parasites, and trying to find management solutions, whether it's medicines or helping the bees uh, help themselves through their own behaviors. Oh, so what are some specifics? What things do you have to uh, to do to make sure that bees are healthy out there? Well, there's there kind of all of the above, and I think the best model I've seen for for sort of colony health is is actually just, you know, looking at interactions of the stress factors from could be temperature stress, it could be chemical stress on their environment, it could be a disturbance by a bear, ironically, that opens the hive up, and how that stress interacts with uh, their parasites. You know, as, as with us, the pathogens and parasites are kind of always in the background, and they're looking for for opportunities. And if the colony is stressed by another factor, then the viruses and bacteria and and other pathogens can start to get an upper hand. And mm-hmm. there's a, I have a colleague actually in Italy who did a really neat model on this. And he his visualization of the model was uh, uh, Damocles, who's you know sitting there eating a, a a dinner at the house of the king, his guest, but he has a sword hanging over his head on a thread. And so mm-hmm. as he's eating the dinner, he's constantly aware that you know it's that life is precious and he's precarious and and um, what we think of as as applied studies for bees and and other you know other beneficial animals and plants for that matter is everything we do is directed at making that that thread just a little bit thicker and less vulnerable to to breaking and and that that I'm not a nutritionist for bees but there are such things such people and you know they're part of the game if they can keep bee nutrition steady and diverse and you know, providing all that's needed besides the raw roots of nutrition. That seems to help. Uh, on our side, we're doing things to bolster the immune system of the honeybees and you know give them a chance to kind of fend off things that come their way. And, and then the final, you know, kind of more, maybe more directed research in our group is to act, to look for active ingredients, things that might actually direct impact the viruses and the, the parasites that the bees carry. So when do bees tend to uh, to get parasites? Is it uh, seasonal? Is it based on what they're pollinating? Like what are the factors that, that modulate it? That's a good question. If their exposure is, it's often from colony to colony. So if colonies are nearby one another and one gets sick, 
uh, the bees from that colony can drift over to another another one or or vice versa, bees can kind of uh, rob supplies from their neighbors and pick them up that way. So, so once they're once a colony in an apiary is sick, it's fairly easy for that disease uh, agent to travel between the colonies, and uh, and it's they're just not they're fortresses, but they're not completely sealed. So, so they do interchange uh, worker bees uh, quite a lot, actually. And so we think it's partly from colony density. But I guess our again our thinking on this right now is that colonies as individuals um, thinking of them as a, as an individual get exposed to things all the time. They pick uh, bacteria on flowers and fungi on flowers and things like that, and you know viruses from their neighbors and mites from their neighbors. And so what we're really hoping to do is to to let them tolerate you know those invasions and kind of push them out over time and not not succumb to them. Well, what's been observed, I mean, I've heard the first things to be pollinated will be February, you know, almonds in Northern California and the U.S. So are people looking longitudinally throughout the whole year, when do certain parasites and pests come about, you know, and maybe they're correlated to, you know, maybe this year or in recent years, for some reason, uh, farmers are using some kind of new pesticide on almonds or blueberries or whatever it is. And uh, that's coinciding with the bees, you know, after they leave those areas, you know, being really sick or diminished in their capacity to pollinate? Yeah, those are all good questions. There's, there's lately, and maybe more importantly, and is work on how bees, individual worker bees, deal with this over time. And so the colony is cycling through worker bees at a pretty high rate when they're foraging. They, they live about a month, and, and by that time are replaced. What's interesting about the stresses you mentioned is that the middle-aged bees that just start to forage and they should have another two weeks of life left, they're the ones that are starting to die off. And and so if you look at a stress, you know, it could be a pollination event, it could be a temperature stress even, that kind of takes the, and again, I say this as a middle-aged researcher, it takes the middle-aged bees and and puts a high risk on them. There's a risk to them at that point. And what it does for the beehive is then they don't have that forager group anymore. The foragers might take a few trips and then and peter out, you know, again. And there are some bees that are long-lived, but others that, that just aren't living as long. And that means the food coming in is diminished, and that starts a cycle. The queen can't produce as many offspring, and so she's not replacing the dying workers, and the colony goes into kind of a spiral at that point. And so what we're really hoping, uh, and again, I can't claim that it's a disease issue all the time, but or a pesticide issue all the time. We we think it's it's more complex than that. But what we're hoping is to to kind of fortify them against those stresses, so that those worker bees live that extra week or two of their lives and bring in more food. Well, what about uh, colony number and type of bees in the colony? Again, I don't know. Let's say they again they start to pollinate almonds. Does the colony respond and produce a lot of foragers for some reason, or when they pollinate other things, do they produce less foragers? You know, do they how do they respond in response to their job duties as they change and as they move around the U.S.? Yeah, there's a little plasticity in that, in that if the foragers die and there's you know an abundance of workers in the hive, they might start to forage at a younger age, but a lot of that's driven innately. The bees that are, when they're first born, bees, they, they spend a couple of days just patrolling the inside of the nest, and then they become nurses where they're actually feeding the, the egg, the larvae as they develop, and that's their role for a week or so. 
And then they start their first flights. So they can't even fly for the first week or so in, in, in general. They start their flights. And then at, at about, you know, around their, after their second week of life is when they really become outdoor bees and start doing trips to bring back food and, and defend the nest and such. And so if you, you can't perturb that very much, you can't take all the foragers and expect them to be replaced, you know, the next day. So it's kind of a cycle that they go, a developmental cycle that they go through that way. That's that not quite fixed, but it's their routine. The only exception to that is at the end of the year when there's, it seems like a physically different set of bees is produced. That's a bit, they're a bit heavier and they, they're, um, they have more storage yeah, proteins and energy. And, and those are thought to simply last longer over the winter time. Okay. So again, what kind of pests or problems do you see, like varroa mites coming in certain times, or do you just see that the colony seems to be at its weakest at a certain point in the year, or you know, in response to a certain yeah. circumstance? Yeah. So in the history, I guess of beekeeping, most of the losses of colonies has been in the winter, and again, it's they might not have enough food for the winter, or uh, since parasites have become more important, the mite numbers, these parasitic mites with the bees do increase over the season because they feed on the late stage larvae and pupae of the bees to reproduce. So they build up in numbers and stress the bees and also carry viruses that start to really, really reach a peak toward the end of the summer. So that there's that seasonality driven by mites where the bees go into winter a bit weaker. We see fungal disease, for example, in the spring in some cases, and and other things like the, there's a bacterial disease of the larvae that seems to go pretty much all year while they're producing new bees uh, without a lot of seasonality other than that. And other the viruses are complicated. The ones that are tied to these mites, because the mites move them from bee to bee, certainly increase as the mites increase. So that hits the worst. They have their highest impact in the fall and winter uh, but there are many other viruses that are that are steadily there throughout the year and, and seem to have an impact on the bee health. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, how dormant are bees in the winter? You know, if they have mites... Could you cool them down to such a point where they're just barely doing anything and then go in there, you know, manually and pull out mites out of the hive or, you know, do some fixing that way? Well, yeah, the problem with that, the mites uh, are pretty good at just clutching onto the bees that they're riding. So I don't know that they would fall off even if the bee was immobilized. They do die off a bit in the winter. They're not, there's a natural mortality of the mites. So the numbers drop maybe 90% even by the spring. But I don't think that's different in sort of colonies that are cooler than others. For the most part, bees are regulate their own hive temperature. So, so even in 
almost Arctic regions, the hive temperature in the winter in the cluster of bees is, is warm still. Mm. And if it's not that way, uh, bees aren't very good at, honeybees actually, I should say, are not good at hibernating. They can't really go into a sort of a cold, immobile state. They, they don't pull out of it. So they have to keep a body temperature that's surprisingly warm uh, for an insect at least. And they do that all winter by burning honey and generating sort of metabolic heat from burning that honey and uh, fl flexing their wing muscles. Basically, they, they actually make their own heaters all winter long. And I don't think as a management tool, you could change that more than a few degrees and, um, you know, try to affect the mites that way. Uh, unfortunately, it's a nice idea. I, I think there's been a bit of work on the other end to, to overheat bees thinking that the smaller mites uh, are less tolerant of high heat than the than the bees. And I think that has some promise where you kind of raise the hive temperature by a couple degrees and the, the mites fall off that way. Oh, people have tried that where if the temperature of the hive gets a little warmer, then they fall off. That's right. Yeah, they're, they're more stressed. I don't know if it's desiccation stress or just the temperature itself is hard on them, but it seems like they get stressed before the bees do with a high temperature. If you cycle temperature, you know, at a certain rate, if that would, uh, that would get the mites. I mean, what happens to the mites just fall off or do they run or do they die or what happens to them? Um, I think in that case, I think the idea is they would, they die. They fall down to the bottom of the hive. They're seen with honeybees. There's this other, uh, defense they have, which is to actually groom themselves literally or groom other bees. And especially when they groom other bees, you know, they have to be at a temperature where they can move around and do that, of course. But that's one uh, really important way that the mite numbers are kept down is they, they kind of go around and pick these mites and actually bite them uh, when they find them on, on a nestmate bee. So they're mammals. They're kind of going and picking through the, the hairs of the bee, finding the mites, and then actually biting it and taking it off that bee. What if you had a hive where you made um, one area of higher or lower temperature, where you created like a, an area where, you, you know, you used heaters or I don't know, some kind of cooling device and you made a part of the hive that's cooler than they want and a part that's hotter than they want, and then observe if the bees go to those areas or stay away from them? Yeah, if the physical space of that gradient was big enough, I think they would find a happy medium and sort of form their cluster there. They, again, they keep the hive temperature around, you know, it's really very close to human body temperature. So it's very warm. If it's cold outside, they have to burn a lot of honey to get to that temperature. And if it's too hot and they, they risk getting above that, uh, very quickly, they get a sort of a heat stress. So I'm sure, I'm sure they would, you know, kind of find a happy medium and, and, or maybe if it's too hot, they break what's called the cluster, the group, the sort of bundle of bees would spread out and they kind of avoid each other kind of like like we would do if we're in a, a hot sweaty room people don't tend to to aggregate as much they would uh, give each other space and maybe you know the heat from the bees spread out a bit more if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes what's been observed about the grooming behavior what's preferential about it does it happen in certain temperatures do certain bees groom other ones and never the reverse. I mean, what's what's been observed? That's a great question. There's a lot of variation. There are some bees that are so-called hygienic, and there's even a form of hygiene called varroa sensitive hygiene, which means they're not only good at picking stuff off each other, but they actually target these varroa mites. And varroa is this, you know, probably the biggest disease risk for honeybees right now. It's a 
decent sized, you know, sort of a frisbee sized mite on the body of a bee. And there are strains of bees that are relentless in finding those mites on each other. That hygiene is really important because that's one of the times when the mite is most exposed and vulnerable. So if the bees can actually see that, see those mites each other, they have the behavior to pick them off. That's been shown to be very good, you know, very helpful for their health against those mites. Uh, and that's just adult bees uh, where they're they're kind of feeding on each other, uh, not feeding, but they're they're grooming them off. You know, it's worker to worker grooming. They're all the same age. Uh, the other form of hygiene that's fascinating and it's been studied for decades uh, is the larvae can get disease, both bacteria and fungi. And there are bees, uh, perhaps all bees, but there are some that express it a bit more actively that can smell something about that larva and they know if she's sick. And if so, they will actually kill it. They'll kill the larva and drag it out of the nest, which doesn't do any good for that one larva in her life. But it's uh, since they're all related and this is uh, a super organism, as it were, uh, by removing those sick larvae, the colony has a much better chance of surviving the, the disease. And so that hygiene also, there's some bees that do it and some that don't. And, and the question of how to breed that into bees is a fascinating one. Uh, just there's their efforts uh, have been some really successful efforts, actually. One uh, long-term one at the University of Minnesota that actually pushed that trait into lines of bees and maintained it. And that and that's really exciting because then you have a bee line that, you know, it's at least one less uh, stress maybe that the bees will face because they can take care of it better. Have people stumbled upon wild colonies of honeybees? And have they observed them? And what do they see that's different? Sure, yeah. There are wild in, in North America and South America, for example, and we would call them feral because bees were introduced to our continents. They were heavily, heavily impacted by these mites and uh, both varroa mites and the, the tracheal mite, which is another smaller mite that hurts honeybees, and almost disappeared. Like very, very rare for much, much of the last uh, now three decades, three and a half decades. And there, but there are pockets of bees that have survived that and they're fairly well dispersed. They're not, um, you know, they're kind of, uh, Half a mile apart on average. I mean, they're not they're not at anything close to a to the density that a beekeeper might use, but they are survivors. And so there's there's a, it is possible for honeybees to survive without without a human hand. Some of them in the southwest and southeast now are are defensive. They're these uh, proximally bees that came from Brazil, but originally were introduced from Africa, called uh, Scutellata is the subspecies. Those bees are super defensive and it, and it helps them as well because they're defensive against mites and other um, parasites. And, and they seem to do well without the, the sort of treatments that beekeepers have to use for, for much of the other honeybees. So for the most part, wild colonies have been decimated, but you know, ones that are out there, like you said, there's pockets to them. What's observed that's different? Do varroa mites, you know, get them? Do they groom more? Like, what do they do that's different from, you know, the the cultured ones? I think they groom more. There's been some work that they uh, maintain smaller colonies, just their life history is a little bit different. And that might help them kind of escape the mites physically by sort of splitting off uh, sister colonies, critical times. I think the best explanation is a sort of behavioral one that they're, they're super vigilant uh, with grooming and maybe this change in their kind of colony 
life history. We hope, and we're actually one of our, you know, thoughts here is to is to look at antiviral responses. So the the mites are bad physically, but we think they're mostly bad because they're carrying these viruses that are increasingly virulent. So there's some RNA viruses. One's called deformed wing virus that's in every single colony, pretty much that we look at. And and the bees are the bees clearly suffer from these viruses. They don't live as long. They're to me they're the culprit in in the death of the middle aged bee. Uh, the bees develop you know fine, starts to forage, but it just doesn't doesn't last very long. And and that is tied to viruses in many cases, and especially this one virus. So if the bees in nature that are surviving on their own. Uh, have these viruses, they must have some sort of defenses against them, an immune response that actually works. And so we're we're really keen to find uh, those responses. You know, it could be bred into bees, uh, but uh, if we don't have the luxury of breeding that into bees, uh, a lot of our work is looking at medicines. So we look at, we're on the, on the hunt, as it were, for antiviral medicines for honeybees that might actually uh, be fed to them. And so they can tolerate high mite levels if the virus uh, that's associated with those mites is kept in check. How do, how do um, I don't know, do, do bees that have mites tend to not have certain disease, diseases or are they just simply more disease prone? Was there an interaction between varroa mites or other mites and the diseases that they get? Yeah, you know, if, if anything, there's there's no kind of displacement of disease in honeybees that, that we've seen where, you know, getting one thing makes you immune to another. If anything, the bees that have heavy mite levels, uh, either, you know, the mites that carry these viruses are, are obviously those viruses tend to go upward, but they also have, you know, a higher tendency towards some of the, the fungal diseases like gut parasites and things like that. So if, if anything, the diseases kind of pile onto each other. Once a bee is ailing from something, uh, she tends to pick up other diseases as, as other disease agents in this case, as time goes on. So when uh, in the sort of 2006 and seven, there was a these events that were came to be called colony collapse disorder, where entire colonies were were kind of fading in in, in weeks, not months. The biggest kind of you know explanation we could find on that, doing autopsies and other you know kind of measurements of bees, is the net number of diseases in them was higher. So in California, it was one virus, and in the East Coast, it was a totally different virus plus a couple, you know, plus a fungus sometimes and or an unrelated virus. So it seemed like the net number of bad actors was what brought them down, not so much any single one of those uh, parasites or pathogens. Okay. What insights are you chasing right now? What uh, looks to be promising in terms of helping bee colony health? You know, anyone working on bee health is, we're all sort of optimistic that we're on the on the cusp of controls. We have a project mm-hmm. here headed by actually Dr. Stephen Cook on treatments for the mites and working everything from, you know, some natural products that, that bees might even forage on uh, to small molecules that a chemical company that synthesizes. And, and those look promising. That would be, you know, kind of the, the easiest win for disease would be to get a better product to decrease these mites and have them out of the system as longer into the year than they are uh, kept in check currently. And that's been exciting. Some of those are in field trials now and, uh, you know, could could at least slow down the, the impacts of the mite. For the viruses and some gut parasites, we're really keen uh, 
both from uh, I guess from a practical standpoint for for regulation and for actual usage by beekeepers, we have a project looking at so-called natural products, so chemicals that might be in you know plant nectars already or other parts of plants or and most importantly that are that are in the human food stream, right? Because we want to we want to feed bees something that that we don't mind coming back into our food. And some of those look promising. We're I, I can't say we have, you know, something that's ready to roll off the shelf, but we have signs that that some of those either stimulate this immune response of the bees or impact the diseases themselves. So so that's been really fun and and uh yeah, you know kind of for me that's it's been the fun part about that is I've gotten to work with some really good plant chemists and you know not not us usual bee folks who are who are really focused on one species of the millions of insects in the world but to work with people who are who have thought about these issues with maybe against crop pests or other insects or they've thought about them just because they love plants and they know what the aromatic compounds of plants are and such. So we've probably, we've tested about 50 of those plant products so far, and we're, we're gearing up to do a bunch more this summer. And that, that to me is just going to be fun. And, and they're all different. I mean, some are names you'd recognize as, as uh, you know, an, an herbal remedy and others are obscure plant chemicals that, that only a real plant fan would have ever heard of. And, and, um, they're they're united by you know one being non-toxic we hope and right. two by being um there's been a history whether in in uh could be in medicines of different continents or cultures um, but there's been some history of them being used as as medicinals uh, as our first filter and so so we've been playing with those and and uh hopefully hoping that we'll get something there that's a safe but what's the metric product. how do you know if it's successful uh, oh, that's a good question. Yeah, so that's very reductionist, I guess. <laughs> what we do is we inject bees with our virus. We have this virus in a, um, in a, actually, even neater than that, more recently, we have the virus cloned, and it's cloned with a green, so inject a pupil bee with that virus. Uh, this is work by a business scientist, uh, Dr. Eugene Ryalbov, who's really just, who is we inject them with basically a glowing virus in the lab, of course, and then take a picture a couple of days later. But as we inject them, we also co-inject one of our candidate medicines. So, so it's a really quick and actually actually fairly inexpensive. It takes a little time to do the injections, but a, a really good bee injector can do about six bees a minute. I mean, really, you just line them up and poke them. Um, huh. So we can get a lot of these. Well, how do you these, get them to line uh, them up, though? How do you do that? Well, they, yeah, so that's why we do the pupae, because the pupae, that's a stage of insects like bees and flies and caterpillars and, uh, and moths and butterflies where they, they've taken the full adult form. So they're basically, you can see their legs and their folded wings, but they don't have stingers for one, which is nice. They're basically that stage where you can line them. It looks kind of like a line of bodies. You can line them side by side, uh, sleeping there, uh, and and then just manually inject into their their dorsal side, and they tolerate that. So it's a very fine needle, but it's not super high tech. It's just a you know a quick jab and right. or two or three days, and then take their pictures. Interesting. Well, very good. Well, Jay, what's the best way for people to find out more? about your work and keep tabs, where can they go? Sure, yeah, with the USDA, um, our lab and is the USDA ARS, so ARS for Agricultural Research Service, uh, Bee Research Laboratory. We're in 
Beltsville, Maryland, but we have a website. Um, there are other USDA labs that are doing active work on honeybees on breeding and nutrition and such as well. So yeah, probably the first inroad is through through our website or or other uh, bee lab websites or you know university bee research sites. We uh, yeah, we do have also that that's sort of advertised there a, a sort of a forensic service that's free for beekeepers. It's called the Bee Disease Diagnostic Service. And so we get you know about 2500 samples a year where beekeepers have had had some tragedy usually. Either a whole colony has died or their their larvae, their brood look sick for some reason. And they ship them in to us. And we have an expert here who's a pathologist, and he will go through them and check them out and give a report. So that's also on our website. If anyone, um, again, we hope bees aren't falling sick, but when they do, uh, we're happy to take a look and give our best guess for what, what might have caused that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, very good. Well, Jay, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's interesting. Yeah, thanks so much, Richard. And I, I also truly appreciate your your interest in the ins- in the social insects. I've I've enjoyed your your prior podcasts, and I've learned a lot myself from hearing some of your speakers. So thanks, thanks oh, thank for uh, shedding shedding some light on our world out here. We love them, but we're glad that you're advertising them to a broader public. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to do more, so more bees to come, other insects. So very good, great. If you like this podcast. Please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.